0: You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Podcast, a production of the CMS program at MIT. This episode features Jim Bizaki on close-reading media poetics. He's a graduate of the very first CMS class and is now an associate professor at Simon Fraser University, teaching courses in new media theory, narrative, and video production. He's a recent recipient of the Simon Fraser University Award for Excellence in Teaching. All our podcasts are available in the iTunes Store, and we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events featuring the world's very best media scholars and practitioners by joining the Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and on our website at cms.mit.edu. Delighted to be here tonight because Jim is a graduate of our very first class, graduate of 2000. <laughs> Way back then, there were four students in the program. Five. Four, five. Five. Right, okay. I was, I was quiet, though. So 20%. It felt, it felt like four. 20% of that first year cohort. Yeah. And I'm standing here in front of the screen. I just want to read a little question from Jim's website because it, okay. it's always made me, it's always, always found it like provocative. If you're standing, Five feet away from a six-foot-wide, high-resolution video display, is that television or IMAX or a screensaver? (laughs) And it's kind of a question that haunts me sometimes. And um, (laughs) the thing with Jim's work that I just want to emphasize, so Jim is is an associate professor at Simon Fraser, uh, does interactive art and uh, interactive design there. And what's really wonderful about his work, and it speaks so well to the kind of ethos of of CMS, uh, and I guess MIT more generally, is he's someone who's always been kind of on the reflective side, asking lots of pesky questions, um, often, as I recall from your (laughs) 13 years ago, these kind of questions that you could never answer, but he kept asking them with a big smile. (laughs) Does a lot of analytic work, you know, pages of articles that he's done. But on the other side, he's a practitioner. He's a filmmaker. He's an interactive artist. Uh, someone whose work is, we had some running, I haven't seen it lately, but I yeah. haven't been here lately. We used to run it on the monitor downstairs. Uh, was, what was that piece? Was that the streaming? Uh,
1: the last two were, were Cycle and Winterscape, but it also included one called Streaming Video which was about, about rivers, actually. And uh, one called Rock Face, which was my first film. So we had all four of those running.
0: And looping. And they're yeah. just, they're, they're really beautiful pieces. They're exquisite. And it's, it's just so nice to have someone who's been able to make it an academic career of thinking and doing, and doing wonderful stuff and thinking wonderful thoughts and posing great questions. So Jim, welcome back. And uh, the floor is yours.
1: OK. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Well, I came by it honestly. Uh, I learned it here. Not bad, huh? Um, I want to say a couple things uh, j- just to start with. I- I'm-, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, partly I'm happy because I'm here with. Uh, uh, probably I'm happy because I'm here, and I'm happy to be here with Justine. Justine's my my partner in life uh, in all my work, uh, intellectual work and creative work. Uh, she's, uh, uh, she's part of everything I do. And if I run into a technical problem, uh, you'll see her at work. She's uh, excellent at uh, keeping the computer systems running. She comes by it honestly. Justine's dad was an electrical engineer. Uh, her brother went to MIT, and four of her nieces and nephews went to MIT. So her, her, her understanding of technical stuff is... Uh, uh, born and bred. Of course, she went to Michigan, and I got her. (laughs) I grabbed her the first week she was on campus and haven't let go since. Um, But I'm I'm also happy to be here uh, just to be back at Comparative Media Studies and and, and back at MIT. Uh, Comparative Media Studies has been and still is the intellectual foundation of my career. Every day in my research, every day in my teaching, uh, I, I, I use the things, uh, the ideas, the concepts, uh, and, and the methodologies and approaches that I learned here. Uh, it all stems from this program. Uh, I'm really happy to see and meet again my faculty and research mentors from when I was here before. Uh, that's been terrific. Um, and I'm also pleased at the quality of the, the, the new faculty. Uh, CMS continues to, uh, to bring in, uh, and you've got access to what I had which is world-class scholars and world-class teachers. And I'm glad that's continuing. And I'm really happy to see the new graduate students. You guys are great, and I'll say a little bit more about you (laughs) in a second. Um, Now, a few more focused observations. First of all, comparative media studies is true to its roots. Uh, The stuff that I saw that was the essence of the program is still here. And in my mind, that's a commitment to uh, academic excellence and intellectual discourse. Uh, it's a commitment to doing things that reach outside the academy and have an effect in the real world. Uh, and it's a commitment always to social values uh, and, and personal values that underlay both our scholarship uh, and our creative work. And that is alive and well in CMS. It was really clear to me in those those two days when we saw the, uh, the everybody presenting and we saw the research groups talking about their work. That hasn't changed at all. Um, so I recognize, when I look at the current program, I can recognize the roots of... Uh, uh, what it was like when I was here. However, there are three significant advances. Uh, one is the faculty complement is much broader than when I was here. When I was here, it was, uh, uh, there was support from a lot of the folks in the School of Humanities, but the program itself was mostly uh, Henry and William. And uh, uh, now we've got a much broader faculty base. We're bringing in, as I said, really, really great new faculty. And the, the working relationship with writing is, uh, I think, a terrific uh, way to move forward. I think that's wonderful. Um, second thing is the research has boomed I went through a version of what you guys did uh, on the first two days except when I was there uh, the whole thing took about three hours and compared to ten years ago I swear there's ten times as much research that's happening in this program as there was in in 1999 and I think that's wonderful Um, and the last thing is the quality of the graduate students. Kind of hurts me to say this, but you guys are pretty good. Um, (laughs) You know, I I remember and what I could, the, t- between the real benchmark, uh, the, the first-year graduate students, really intelligent, really inter- interesting stuff, uh, great backgrounds and great minds. But what, uh, what struck me especially was the, the, the second-year graduate students. And what struck me about them was I could make a clear benchmark between where our research uh, program, our, our work towards thesis and research, personal research, was at uh, in, in the fall of 2000 when we came back, starting our second year and the quality of the research agendas that uh, the, the, the second years have with their research agendas. You guys are way ahead of us, and so I see good things for the, for the program uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the work that you guys are going to do now and when you leave here. I just think that's terrific. So that's, um, that's in the nature of an opening. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of a, of, a, of a game. It's kind of a puzzle game. Uh, and then I'll, go into, I'll show you some, some slides and stuff. If questions of clarity come up, please ask me. Okay, don't 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 feel shy about that. So now I think, oh, I want to talk before. Just now I'm going to you want to switch over, and I'll talk about uh, ceremony. So we should. Oh, it is here. Sorry, <laughs> I was looking at the wrong screen. Um, so this is Ceremony of Innocence. It was done by Real World Multimedia in the uh, in the in the late 90s. It's uh, it's a series of 60 puzzles. Uh, the puzzles are based on postcards and letters, as you see. Uh, I just replayed it in, in Nick's office the last week. I got about uh, a quarter of the way through the uh, the total number of, of postcards and letters. It's based on a book, and the book is called Griffin and Sabine. Has anybody read this? Anybody know this? Yeah, cool. You like it? Oh, good. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so Griffin Sabine—it's a love story. There's actually—it's actually a trilogy. Here's one of them: uh, Griffin and Sabine. The second one, oh, is uh, well, the Sabine's notebook, and the third one is the Golden Mean. I think that's the—I think I have it in the right order. So this is one of the three books in the trilogy. It's by a British Columbia artist named Nick Bantock, who was an illustrator and decided he wanted to write a story. And um, so he designed. Here's one of the postcards he designed. I don't know if you can. Give you a quick look at that, huh? Nice work. And the uh, the flip side of the postcard uh, is the writing, and the writing is uh, it's addressed to Griffin Moss, that would be Griffin, at uh, Griffin Cards, Yates Avenue in London, England, and it's from Sabine Stroham, uh in the Sikman Islands in the South Pacific. I think those are fictional islands. And so Sabine writes in beautiful handwriting. I'll show you a a bigger version. Yeah, it's nice, beautiful handwriting. Uh, She writes to Griffin, Griffin Moss, it's good to get in touch with you at last. Could I have one of your fish postcards? I think you were right. The wine glass has more impact than the cup. Sabine Stroheim. So that's the first postcard, the first in a series of 60 postcards and letters that is the, the story of their love affair. Uh, I'll show you the second one. I don't know if you can make it out. There's a, it's a fish in a, a wine glass. So that's the wine glass she's talking about there, right? And I'll show you a bigger version of it in a second. Uh, but it's, it's a delightful work. I strongly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. Um, now it's got postcards, but the, uh, whoops, missing one here. When you get to one of the letters, if I, the letters, come out. And, uh, so it's kind of like a pop-up book for adults, and you can read the letters. And again, the uh, beautiful calligraphy. Uh, Sabine's calligraphy, her writing, is quite different. Her penmanship is quite different than Griffin's. Griffin tends to use uh, uh, a bad typewriter when he writes, sometimes scrunchy little print letters, but Sabine has this flowing uh, script. And all that is part of the narrative, which we'll see in, in a moment. So that's Griffin and Sabine, uh, the books. Now, recognize that picture in the top left? Okay, that's the first postcard you saw. And the second one, is, uh, it's on black, but it's the, the goldfish and the wine glass that you saw in the second postcard. So I'm going to play it. And as I play it, I'm going to shout out what I'm doing with the mouse. Okay, because one of the things about this is that the, uh, the mouse is... Uh, the graphic user interface is subverted on purpose, and we'll see about that in a second. So I played uh, 18 of them, so I can go back to this. I'm going to skip the opening. and the There's a nice opening, Ben Kingsley. But we won't listen to Ben. Reading from uh, The Second Coming by WB Yeats, the one about the beast that's slouching towards wow. Bethlehem. So here we go. So this is the, uh, well, so far the interface is working. Uh, cursor to the right, mouse down, mouse down. <laughs> clicking doesn't seem to do much so it's a puzzle so i gotta solve the puzzle so that doesn't do anything doesn't me clicking that doesn't click on that oh,
2: oh.
1: no hands folks <laughs> my cursor's gone okay so when i move the mouse uh what do i see but lo and behold my cursor is now the parrot I don't know what that was, it's not as rude as it looked, I think it's a seat, and if I sit here i mousing, mouse to the right, mouse to the right, it doesn't want to go to the right, And mouse to the right, nothing's happening, mouse to the right, mouse to the right, mouse to the right, so the cursor functionality, I'm going the left okay, It's quite happy to go to the left, but mouse to the right, mouse to the right, i got to really work at it to get it to go to the right, and if I work hard enough, oh, I lost the stamp, but I still haven't solved the puzzle, i got to solve the puzzle! to move forward and so uh if cover a bit. Yes I know every kinds of time. If I mouse to the hot to the right really, really hard, maybe there we go. Okay, now it's a <laughs> And now we'll hear a good reader.
2: Griffin Moss It's good to get in touch with you at last. Could I have one of your fish postcards? I think you were right. The wine glass has more impact than the cup. Sabine Strohem.
1: Anybody recognize the voice? Isabella Rossellini, beautiful. Isn't she something? So here's the next one. So the, the, the version I showed you from the book was on a white card, uh, and this is on a black card. But other than that, there's the goldfish and there's the... Uh, uh, so let's see what happens here. Oh, wrong, wrong mouse. Got to go back to this mouse here. Too many m- mouses. Okay, so if I click, I click. Uh, a little bit of a noise. No noise out here, so it's kind of... That, that parrot kind of scared me, so... I don't want to go near the mouth here, let's see... uh, click on that click on that there's good Uh oh cutscene that's the second puzzle and there's his kind of scritchy Sabine
3: thank you for your exotic postcard forgive me if it's a memory lapse on my part but should I know you I can't fathom out how you were aware of my first broken cup sketch for this card. I don't remember showing it to anyone. Please, enlighten me. Yours, Griffin Moss.
1: Beautiful little cutscenes that go with it. So I think we'll... Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's switch, uh, switch in picture. Hello. Oh, wrong one. Okay. All right. So I'm going to talk. It's it's a it's a, it's a methodology uh, uh, presentation I'm going to give. Boy, that's boring, isn't it? Methodology. Well, it's it's you got to do it, hey. Eh? Um, so I'm curious about your methodology. How many people are going to use methodologies that are, are quantitative in in your own research? Yeah, it's okay. You're, you're at MIT. You can do that. You know. <laughs> so a couple people. How many people are going to use methodologies that are qualitative? in your research. Um, so more like four or five or six of us. Okay, that's good, seven. Uh, okay, it's so more, more qualitative people. How many people are going to use close reading as their uh, research methodology? Ah, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> film is my favorite medium, you know. <laughs> I like the interactive stuff, but I love film. Um, so well, I'm going to talk about close reading uh, as, as a methodology. And I'll talk about uh, how I do close readings. I'll talk about why I do close readings, uh, what my goal is on it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, my goal is I want to understand poetics. Uh, that's, I want to understand the, uh, uh, the design decisions of the work. I want to understand the design parameters of the medium. I want to be able to reverse engineer the creative decisions that went into the making of a work in order to understand the design of uh, both exemplary works and of the medium itself. And I want to understand their effect on experience. So I close read for poetics. That's my methodology. Uh, ooh, wrong way, sorry. Oh, that was right. So I'll start with, uh, I'm going I'm to talk about three close readings I did. The first one is Ceremony of Innocence. Um, <laughs> this is kind of a funny, oh, is it? Ooh, yeah. Maybe we should, uh, yeah, so I should go down a bit. Hang on, sorry about that, folks. Uh, so I open the Displays preference. Sorry about that. Uh, color. Go scaled. Display, scaled, okay, yeah, okay. I know what it's gonna do. So it's at uh, 1280, I guess that's too high. Try this, Let's see if this is any better. Uh, and that's I don't know. Well, 1920 was there. Oh, you think I lost it when? Uh, uh, it's not showing 1920. So I think I'll live with this. Let's let's try that. Huh? What are you saying? Um. Not sure what you mean. What are you thinking? I can, I can answer questions while well, Justine's doing that. Any questions so far? <sighs> yes. Is this an actual performance engine or I guess if you're not completely picture of the context? are they teaching more love or tall in love to work to Yes. And this is something that actually happened No. It's, it's completely fiction. And in fact it's, uh, uh, it's, not, it's it's unreal. It verges on the surreal. Okay. Ah, I think it's Paul McGann, who I'm not familiar with. Um, he, uh, what did he do? He's a British actor, and he, I just saw him as an. It ex- was, a, I think, an executive producer for, um, I think, for Rome, which was a really good series. But he was, he's a British actor before then. Anybody know him, Paul McGann? Okay, got it. Thank you. Still kind of ugly, but that's okay doesn't matter. It's only pictures, huh? Um, So this, I kind of like this picture of neurotology versus ludology. I won't talk about it much, but there was actually a religious war in game studies uh, in the 90s between the so-called ludologists on the one hand, well, no, they were self-labeled ludologists on the one hand, and the so-called neurotologists on the other hand, and uh, MIT was actually part of that, Um, but that's another story for another time. It was a really stupid phenomena, but what what I like about the debate between the role of narrative and the role of uh, uh, gameplay and ludology in games is is some of the issues that are brought up. So the debate was stupid, but the issues are real. Um, (laughs) I guess that happens a lot. Um, So I I always thought there was a conceptual problem in the back of the debate in that the games afford two different kinds of immersion, and and people didn't differentiate clearly between them. Uh, Games afford the uh, the narrative immersion of suspension of disbelief, a deep pleasure uh, in story. At the same time, they support ludic immersion, uh, the, the balance between challenge and, and ability that leads to a flow state, according to Csikszentmihalyi. And there are two different kinds of uh, immersive states. And they, I'm not sure they're compatible. I think that's one question. is uh, um, does, the, uh, does the act of interactivity uh, interfere in some ways, in some situations, with the, the, the pleasure of story? Uh, Ermi and Myra in 2005 had a paper where they talked, about, they talked to, to, to young gamers, and in interviewing young gamers, they actually identified three different types of immersion within games. What they called imaginative immersion, which is the pleasure of narrative, suspension of disbelief. What they call challenge-based immersion, which was uh, I call a ludic immersion. It's, it's, it's the immersion of successfully uh, meeting challenge and reaching the flow state. Uh, and the third that they identified was what they called sensory immersion. Well, I'm most interested in the first two. Um, So my research question when I was here, this this is my thesis, by the way, this is my my master's thesis, became uh, how can the design of an interactive experience help to suture any potential gap between narrative pleasure, on the one hand, and interactive decision-making, on the other hand? So um, I, I knew some things going in. Uh, one of the things that I knew before I started was that, that uh, I'd heard a little bit about Ceremony of Innocence. I, hadn't, I didn't have it yet. I got it while I was here. Uh, but I had talked to some of the folks. Uh, it was done by Real World Multimedia. Uh, Peter Gabriel had a, a really good multimedia production uh, wing of, of, of Real World, uh, his music company. And they did, uh, they did three really good CD-ROMs. One was called Explora, which was kind of testing things out. A second one was called Eve, that had a little bit more of a story. And the third one was Ceremony of Innocence, which was this adaptation of uh, the Griffin and Sabine stuff. And I'd I'd gone to, uh, I went to a series of workshops in Banff. Justine actually helped organize it. Banff's a beautiful spot. It's in the Canadian Rockies. It's a wonderful location. And they had a great new media institute there, uh, uh, led by uh, a woman who's now the president of uh, Ontario College of Art and Design, um, son of a gun, Sarah Diamond, uh, who's a genius. And so Sarah worked on on really good uh, experiences there that brought uh, interactive uh, and multimedia designers, uh, artists, Uh, producers, entrepreneurs, and scholars uh, to this little town in the Canadian Rockies, and we'd spend uh, a week or ten days just talking about what was new that year in in interactive media. And so I met uh, Josh Portaway and Alex Mayhew, who are a couple of real-world designers. And I knew from there, I I didn't see their work on *Ceremony of Innocence, but I saw what they were working on in advance. And uh, they were were looking looking at the cursor, and they were, um, I call it subverting the work of the cursor, uh, and it really is a subversion. You know, the, 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 the cursor and the mouse is the foundation of the GUI. And, uh, you know, when, once, if, if your GUI is working great, if your mouse and your cursor uh, and the screen are in sync, uh, the world is good. If all of a sudden, if you, if you divert from the uh, operation of the GUI, uh, the world gets ugly pretty fast. Uh, and so I thought it was interesting what they, were, what they were playing with. And I knew that that aspect of uh, Ceremony of Innocence would be of interest to me. Uh, but that's about all I knew. I didn't know much else. I'd read the books. Uh, Griffin and Sabine. Um, so here's the process that I followed. So this is my methodology. Uh, I, I, I read, I'd read the books first. Um, I started with an initial observational frame, and it's pretty much what I talked about so far. I was interested in the, uh, any possible disconnection between narrative pleasure and uh, interactive experience and interactive decision-making. So that was the core thing I was looking at. And I, 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 I had a guess that the cursor would be one of the things that I would look, look pretty closely at. Um, So I I played the games. Uh, I don't the games are puzzles. There's a bit of controversy in in game studies. Some people say puzzles are games. Some people say they're not games. It's another theological discussion that doesn't matter. So I go back and forth, puzzles, games. Um, I go with uh, uh, Eric Zimmerman and these kinds of things. According to Zimmerman's definition of games, puzzles fit. So I go with uh, Eric Zimmerman and Kate Salin. Um, um, So I took notes. Um, I, I looked at my observations, I came to some tentative conclusions, uh, and then I kind of repeated. I'd play the game again and take more notes and uh, revise my conclusions, and then play the game again and take more notes and revise my conclusion. Uh, and I, so I probably played the game all the way through four or five times, uh, and then I had my, I, my notes were complete, uh, and my conclusions had pretty much solidified. Uh, and so that was the, the front end of my research process. The back end was I just went into my room for three months and wrote. Uh, so that was the back end. So when I was writing, I want to talk a little about the raw material for the writing. Um, I took notes. I organized the notes into categories. And so these are uh, uh, you know, kind of the big, the big headers were narrative, uh, narrative theme, second one, gameplay was the third one, including the cursor, It's at the bottom of this list, but was high up in what I was interested in. Uh, And other media, you know, what was happening with the graphics, what was happening with the sound, what was happening with the cut sequences. Um, And I organized them into uh, a database. Database, uh, this this is part of it. This shows, I think I had on the order of maybe 15, 16 different fields, maybe more, maybe 17 or 18 different fields. And this shows about eight of them. So this, uh, this, is this, this printout is, a, is about half of the, uh, the, the, the database scale. And it's for three puzzles. I have my own system. So F4G was uh, uh, the fourth puzzle uh, in the first uh, menu, and F05 was the, the fifth puzzle, and that was the sixth puzzle. And the G at the top means it's the, it was a card that came from Griffin, and that's important to the story. The S here, 405S, that came from Sabine. And 406G, for Griffin, came from Griffin. And so one of the things that I was looking at was the relationship between uh, interface. As it turns out, one of the things I decided I was going to look at closely was the relationship between interface and character, character being a narrative dimension, interface being an interactive dimension. Um, so that turned out to be important when I did the work. Um, so these, these notes... Oh, gee, I, a, I was wrong in the number. I got my notes here. I actually had 30 fields, not 18. So I had 30 fields, and this shows eight of the of the 30. So it's a pretty big database of stuff. Uh, I didn't try to fill in uh, all 30 fields uh, for all 60 games. I probably filled in about half the fields in total, uh, because as I went on, the the goal wasn't to come up with a database. The goal was to come up with a thesis. And so as I started filling stuff in and started refining uh, what I thought was the conclusion, uh, I would stop filling some stuff out because they just weren't as important to me. Uh, but I did have a lot of raw material, and I knew the raw material that was important to my argument, and that was the basis to my argument. Uh, this is evidence, okay, for those of us that are... For, uh, there's nobody. It's so good to be here, you know. <laughs> I'm in the School of Humanities. <laughs> I don't have to justify qualitative methodologies. I can't tell you how pleasurable that is. <laughs> I, mean, I got a great school, School of Interactive Arts and Technologies. It's a wonderful place. Um, but half of the folks in the school are computer scientists. Uh, the arts half, half of them are designers. Uh, so computer scientists, they make stuff. Designers, they make stuff. And part of their making process is user studies. <laughs> user studies are great, but you know I don't do user studies. For me, n equals one, what's it to you? Um, this is what I saw. And actually, I saw it, and it's real. And I'm going to argue about it. So um, this is the evidence. This is the basis of my argument. My joke about—I uh, mean—I love the the SCIET grad students; they're, they're wonderful. But my joke is, uh, uh, if you ask ten SAE graduate students that's my school, if you ask ten SAE graduate students, if it was raining outside, uh, they say that's okay. We'll, we'll organize a user study, and and if you tell them, but yeah, but my feet are getting wet. They say that's okay, Jim. We'll get more users. So that's a little bit of an unfair story, but it's about uh, if you're working with computer scientists or if you're working with design methodologists, uh, you better be ready for user studies. And you better be stand up proud for humanities methodologies, by gosh. That's what we're here for. Uh, so here's my findings. My findings were that, um, that the design of the work can, in fact, suture uh, potential disruptions between story and gameplay. That's what, that's what I claimed, anyways. Um, the... Um, and I identify two strategies for, uh, for suturing this potential disruption. The first strategy I call narrative texture. Uh, and narrative texture is it's an infusion of narrative across all the parameters and all the sensibilities of the work. It's what any good filmmaker does uh, when she goes on location to, to, to shoot someone uh, or when uh, the, she brings in a, uh, uh, a set designer or when she works with a music composer, what you do in film is you've got a narrative goal for the cinema, I guess I'm in the Hollywood tradition when I say this, you've got a narrative goal for the film, and everything you put on screen and everything you put in the speakers builds to narrative. It's a narrative wash that cuts across. And the plot exists in the sea of narrative texture, uh, which is reinforcing things like character, emotion, and story world. That's that's one of the beauties of Hollywood cinema, actually, is that they do that so well. well, they did the same thing in, in, in Ceremony of Innocence. That, uh, they had all this beautiful narrative texture from the Griffin and Sabine trilogies. They had Nick Bantuck's graphics. Uh, they had his words, the story that he wrote, the plot. Um, Let's set the plot aside for a second. I'm going to do non-plot stuff. But they had the way he wrote the words. Uh, Griffin is a, um, uh, he's a, he's, he's a commercial designer. He's a commercial artist. Uh, he's got a design company. Sabine makes stamps for a living. So they're both graphic artists. So the way that they write stuff, the stamps that she makes, the postcards that they both make, those are expressions of, of their own personality. So it goes st- uh, straight to character and, and straight to the heart of what I think is this narrative. Right down to the font choice was a narrative decision. Uh, that, that they got from, from Griffin and Sabine. The, the real-world folks added more narrative texture in the sound effects, the music, the voice recordings. I mean, Isabella Rossellini, she's she's wonderful. And Paul McGann, you can hear his personality in that kind of tight, constricted voice that he's got. Um, And that's all uh, kind of a narrative texture, the animations. And so that's the first thing I found. Not very surprising, by the way. It really is. uh, It's the bread and butter of uh, uh, feature-length filmmaking, is narrative texture. Uh, A bit more interesting was that I also found that uh, narrative was not only washed across the entire work as a texture, but more interesting, narrative was embedded within the design of the interface. Uh, specifically, the game uh, remediated the cursor. Uh, first, in the look of the cursor. And so let's take a look at the, uh, some of the cursors. Here's Sabine's cursor. So um, we saw in the first one uh, the cursor became a parrot. Uh, one of the ones you didn't see, the cursor becomes a butterfly. These are all Sabine's cards, uh, cards that she wrote. And this is her, her graphic art. Uh, and what the, the real world folks is, they pick part of the art from the postcards, from Bantux postcards, and they, in many cases, about 18 of the 60 puzzles uh, have a cursor where they change the look of the cursor, they remediated the look, so it's not just an arrow, but it's it's one of these things. This is kind of a sort of an ethereal spirit, uh, and this is a much more powerful, um, uh, mysterious and somewhat scary spiritual force. Well, these the, the look of the cursors when the cursor was remediated. Uh, the look of the cursor was remediated on her cards, it reflects her personality. It shows a sense of the exotic, a freedom of spirit, like a bird or a butterfly, and occasionally something mysterious and elemental, a powerful spiritual force. All those reflect her character as we see it throughout the story. And so these choices of of remediated cursor looks were narrative decisions because they're reinforcing character. Similarly, Griffin's cursor, and again, these are the ones where... uh, uh, the regular arrow cursor disappeared. So uh, the cursor in one of these things, we'll see the arrow is about to get taken over by the plane. It's in the process of, of being subsumed into the plane. In this one, the cursor, the head never moves. The cursor is those two eyes, which you can move back and forth like this, but the head doesn't move at all. I can't show you my eyes moving, so I'm doing this to kind of simulate it. This one, the cursor, <laughs> you know, it's this weasel, this rat. This marmot. I mean, where's the dignity in that? What does that say about Griffin? That his cursor is a a, a rodent. Uh, the cursor was a flame, uh, which goes out at the end. Uh, the airplane at the end of the puzzle crashes. Uh, and this guy, this uh, this is this is this guy that, that can't go forward, can't go back, can only go forward. But when he goes forward, he has to hop. And he, and so the cursor is trying to get this guy to hop from one column to the other. And the way it is set up, he's going to fall and he's going to die. Well, you know, this, this remediated look of Griffin's cursors, they reflect his personality. They're mundane, they're ordinary, they're limited. He's got flight, but it's mechanical flight, not, uh, not more beautiful butterfly flight or bird flight. It's an airplane. It's an airplane that crashes. Uh, he's a rodent, some pair of beady eyes, a match that goes out, and a confused little man who falls, crashes, and burns. And again, the choice of making the cursor this, as opposed to the error, uh, my claim is a narrative choice uh, that it goes to character. Now, uh, you know, you could argue, by the way, this, this remediated look of the cursor, it's kind of a variation on uh, narrative texture in a way. It's just saying, let's take the narrative look and let's, let's put it in the cursor. But the other kind of remediation of the cursor was the remediation of cursor function. And we saw that when I did that first uh, 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 parrot one where I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get the thing easily to roll to screen left. It went to right. Um, so these functional remediation of the cursor subverting the c- conventions of the normal graphic user interface are frustrating. They're frustrating as heck. Um, what I found when I looked at, the, at the, uh, the, the, the remediated cursor functions, which didn't happen on all of the ones that had the remediated cursor look, but a, a subset of those did have the remediated cursor function. So the ones where the, where the cursor function was remediated correlated much more strongly with Griffin than they did with Sabine. And my claim is again, you could see that as a narrative decision. Uh, my claim was that the uh, uh, that's got narrative implications, and the narrative implications reflect Griffin's character. Griffin's cursor for the user was troubling. It was indirect. It was ineffective, and it was frustrating. It's puzzles for these these games. That was the point of the puzzles for these uh, probably about ten puzzles that I'm talking about here that were. Uh, Griffin's remediated cursor functionality. So if the cursor use was troubling, indirect, ineffective, and frustrating, guess what? Griffin's personality, troubled, indirect, ineffective, and frustrated. And so my claim was that the uh, uh, the remediation of the cursor functionality uh, was in fact a narrative uh, uh, decision, and it reflected character. And you could see the difference between Griffin Griffin's character and Sabine's character was reflected both in the look in the cursor and in the functionality of the remediated cursors that, that went with Griffin. So that was, um, that was my argument. I want to say a little bit now about the, uh, the process. And I want to read from... Uh, I'm going to get the names wrong. Is William here? William, they're Belgian. They're not Dutch. <laughs> uh, Jan van Lui, does that sound about right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, huh? And Jan Batens, uh, they're, they're two of our, our Belgian colleagues. A book called Close Reading in New Media. Anybody read it? It's a pretty good, it's a pretty good little book. Uh, I love the opening. Uh, I just want to read from the opening right now. So this is van Lui and Baitens. Um And they're talking about reading and close reading. There are numerous meanings to the verb to read, they say, and its origins are rather obscure, as the Oxford English Dictionary informs us. Earliest Teutonic and Sanskrit precursors designate acts of deliberation, consideration, giving thought or attendance to, or refer to success or accomplishment. Ah, later definitions complicate matters even further. However... A rather obscure meaning of read is its use as a noun signifying stomach of an animal. This sense is possibly the oldest of meanings and uses. So what's the connection between stomach of an animal and to read? Yeah, Elise. Oh, that's a good answer. It's not the one they had, but that's, that's, that's a great answer. Bingo, oracularly indeed, perfect. Okay, so it's a, it's about it's about augurs, right? You know, we, if you if you want to make a prediction in Rome, uh, you'd find a critter that you could wrestle down, and you'd cut the critter open, and you'd read the innards. Okay, and you would prognosticate the future based on your reading of the innards, just as Elise said. Okay, so that's 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 where they that's where they see the most powerful uh, and original version of the verb to read. They go on to say, it's possible that all other meanings have developed from the practice to prognosticate, to discern, or otherwise interpret good and bad fortune by perusing the innards of animals. They actually credit Wolfries with that, 2000. Uh, Baton and Van Looy go on to say, reading, and this is, this is consistent with the augur's use, the oracular use, as Elise said, uh, of reading. Reading is always an act of dismemberment, of tearing, of tearing open in search of hidden meanings. Close, as in close reading, has come to mean in an attentive manner. But in the expression to pay close attention, for example, we have a sense of real nearness. When close reading, when close reading, the eyes of the reader are almost touching the words of the text. Nothing is to escape the attention of the meticulous scholar. Every small discontinuity contradiction or aporia is identified and written down for future reference. While the meaning of close can imply near in relationship, as in close relative, or intimate and confidential, as in close friends, when it comes to close reading, there is a sense of hostility between the reader and the text. The text is never trusted at face value, but is torn to pieces and reconstituted by a reader who is always at the same time a demolisher and a constructor. I love vigorous writing, you know? Um, so I don't know if I live up to that. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I never, I, I, think I, I think I buy into the close part. When I do close reading, you can see from the database uh, that I believe in the power of, of observation, the power of notation, and the, con- and, and the translation of, uh, of meticulous notes into evidence. To me, that's the heart of the, the beginning of the process for me. Uh, But i got to confess, and this may be a flaw, I I, I never read works with hostility. In part because if I'm going to pick something to do a close reading, if I'm going to pick a a subject of study, I'm going to pick something I like. Uh, And I I, I was pretty sure I'd like uh, *Ceremony of Innocence. I like the books. I like what the the real world designers would say. I played a couple puzzles, and yeah, I like that thing. So it was worth me dedicating uh, four or five months of my life to doing it. And, you know, if you're going to do a close reading, pick something you like. The other reason to pick something you like is I think uh, a good close reading will explicate not only the design decisions that went into the particular artifact, uh, but if it's an exemplary artifact, if it's a great film or a great game, you start to explicate the design decisions and the design parameters in the medium itself. And, and I think a good close reading should explicate not just the object of study, it should also explicate the medium. And again, you might as well pick something that's good, and if it's good, you're probably going to like it. So I don't, I don't buy into hostility necessarily. I'm sure they knew what they were talking about, though. Um, so yeah, this is the process uh, that I went through with uh, close reading. Uh, we talked a bit about that. I'm going to skip that. Um, I guess the other thing I want to say is I want to say a little bit about um, the, the, the personal and the intellectual stances that you go through in a close reading. Let me just double check. How many people have done close readings? I know you have, and William has. So, so this is old half. Is so. it's okay if I go over this? Even though you guys know all this. What's interesting in a close reading is the, uh, um, is the oscillations that you go through. Uh, and I, I rely a lot on Bolter and Grusen. You know, you guys got Le, uh, Penguin and Leviathan. When The book that they gave us when we were coming here in 1999 was, was Remediation. I've kind of imprinted on that book. I find, it, uh, uh, I find the ideas tremendously useful. Uh, and so, for example, in, in close reading, during play um, of the game, I'm at the same time oscillating and alternating between being absolutely immersed in the, in, uh, immersed in the experience, in a, tra- in a state of transparent immediacy, uh, to use Bolter and Grusen's example, and then distancing myself, hypermediating, and kind of observing what I'm doing and observing what I'm feeling. And that oscillation gets repeated throughout the process. Uh, that oscillation between immediacy and immersion on the one hand, and hypermediation and distancing in order to do analysis on the other hand. Uh, afterwards, you know, when you're when kind of organizing your notes and you're thinking of your notes, you try to remember that feeling of immediacy, but clearly you're living uh, that hypermediated analytical stage. Uh, and the same thing in the writing. Uh, you, you go through that again when you're, uh, uh, when you're writing as well, remembering what you did uh, and using that memory of the experience as part of the writing, as part of what gives your writing uh, interest and pleasure to uh, the, the scholarly readers that you want to attract. Um, so... Part of that is you end up kind of playing a role, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll describe the role that I played uh, in the, um, in, from, my, from my, my thesis when I talk about close reading. So um, let's see here. My database of notes uh, forms the basis for the close reading sections that follow. The observations can be treated as a data set built through multiple reviews of the books and puzzles constant referencing and modification of my notes, and repeated screenings of a videotape of the cut sequences. I had the cut sequence on tape because that was the easiest way to look at them. Um, <laughs> you remember tape? <laughs> we used to, Our film used to be on this brown tape. Yeah, sure, Jim. Um, despite the considerable amount of information I had at my disposal, I tried to write the descriptive sequences of the close reading sections as if they represented the perspective of a naive interactor. This naive interactor whose voice I created is someone who has not read the books, is playing the game for the first time. These descriptive sequences therefore represent a constructed phenomenology. It's completely based on my own experience, but it approximates the experience of a different and theoretical interactor. This theoretical interactor is far less informed than I was, but has considerable power to observe and comment in detail upon his own reactions to the event. And again, that's an exercise in kind of distancing and hypermediation, uh in order to, uh, number one, maintain your ana- analytical distance from the work, but number two, write with a kind of conviction that can convey to the reader uh, the pleasure of the work because we should be writing about things that give us pleasure. Well, I don't believe if we should or not. I like writing about things that give me pleasure. Let me be real clear. I um, oh, didn't mean to do that. Um, hang on a second. Okay, here we go. Here's a test. Now was a test, Okay. Take out your pencils and papers. Um, I'm going to read from an author. Plots are either simple or complex. I call simple when the change of fortune takes place without reversal of the situation and without recognition. A complex action is one in which the change is accompanied by such reversal or by recognition or by both. These last should arise from the internal structure of the plot so that what follows should be the necessary or probable result of the preceding actions. Who wrote that? Aristotle. What was the name of the work? (coughs) Yeah, the phoenix. That's exactly right. So, that's Aristotle's Poetics, which is still, I mean, I was in Nick's class. Nick's a great teacher, by the way. Nick was going through theories of, uh, uh, of narrative about discourse and about uh, story and, and plot. And, you know, you can see the traces of uh, what we just read uh, in narrative theory uh, today. We've surely gone past Aristotle, but we haven't forgotten Aristotle, and his ideas are still strong. So, he wrote this book called The Poetics. Now, it's about. Let me read you a real tiny bit of another passage if I can find it here. There's a whole other different passage. He talks about unraveling. Um, uh, the unraveling is that which extends. Well, I have to read the whole thing. By the complication, let uh, me back up. Every tragedy falls in two parts: complication and unraveling, or denouement. By the complication, I mean all that extends from the beginning of action to that part which marks the turning point to good fortune or bad fortune. The unraveling is that, was ex- is that which extends from the beginning of that change until the end of the work. Thus, says Aristotle in the Poetics, thus in the, in the Linkeus of Theodectes, the complication consists of the incidents presupposed in the drama, the seizure of the child. So what do you think his methodology was? He's writing about poetics. That is, he's, he's writing about the design of what? In particular, which medium is he writing about? Poetics? Classic Greek, Greek tragedy. And he contrasts a little bit with epic stuff. He's writing about classic Greek tragedy. He's writing about the form that Greek tragedy takes. And that first passage that I, I, I read describes the narrative arc, uh, that you've got complications and you lead up to a, 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 a climax and then there's a, a, a reversal and a, and a denouement after that. So that's the narrative arc. Um, how did he figure that out? How did he understand? There's a hint in the last thing that I read. Talk about Lincteus and uh, uh, Lincteus' work. What do you think he did? It's a philosopher. You think he just sat on a rock and philosophized? Where do you suppose he got the effect of poetics of Greek tragedy? He went to the plays. So he went to the plays of Aristophanes and Euripides and Sophocles. He watched the plays, and he did his close readings. And from his observation of the great Greek tragic writers, he reversed engineered the design principles for drama, and he wrote them down in the poetics. So the, 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 this, this, this activity that we're engaged in, this close reading, to try to understand the dynamics of work, uh, it's all built on Aristotle, uh, which is maybe neither here nor there, but I think it's, it's kind of cool. Um, more to the point, David Bordwell uh, writes about poetics. David Bordwell is deeply committed to poetics. He's a great film scholar. Uh, so Bordwell says, uh, poetics derives from the Greek work poesis, or active making. The poetics of any medium studies the finished work as the result of a process of construction, a process that carries a craft component. The more general principle, so, uh, uh, it's, it's a, process of construction, a process that includes a craft component, the more general principles according to which the work is composed and its functions, effects, and uses. So those are the, that's the stuff of, uh, of an inquiry into poetics. Any inquiry into the fundamental principles by which artifacts in any representative, representative medium are constructed and the effects that flow from these principles can fall within the domain of poetics. And what I like about Borderwell's work is that uh, he maintains that this is, because it's based on evidence, is an empirical activity. And he writes, in a shorter quote, empirical inquiry, he says, involves checking our ideas against evidence that exists independent of our beliefs and wishes. And that's the heart of a close reading. And that's why you, you want to, either want to have a really good memory or you want to take good notes. Because when you build an argument, you have to be convinced and you have to be convinced in good faith that that which you saw, you saw that what you describe happening actually happened in the film or in the game or in the novel or in the poem um, because that's the nature of evidence. And that's a contract you make with, you, with uh, the readers of your scholarship is that when I say something is evidence, yes, it happened, and yes, I saw it. And that's what allows you to make empirical arguments, as Bordwell says, uh, from stuff that you saw yourself. Um, so, the, 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 so how's, the, how's the time going? Where are we at? Oh, I gotta, oh, geez, I've done an hour. Son of a gun. Um, I better bomb through this. Well, I'll try to do two more really quickly and then leave some time for questions. Um, I wonder if I can do that. Yeah, I'll give it a try. Uh, th- uh, three readings of Run, Lola, Run. Uh, how many people have seen Run, Lola, Run? Okay. Who has not seen it? Maybe not. You must see it. You must see it. It's, I think it's the, my favorite film of the 90s. I think it's just a wonderful piece of work. Um, but I'm going to talk about it, so I apologize for that for those that haven't seen it. If I had more time, I'd show you some clips, but I'm going to have to bomb through without them. Uh, so this paper, again, relies on uh, remediation. Uh, I use remediation in two different ways. I, I, I do like Bolter and Grusen, but they are inconsistent sometimes. And they use the same word with two completely different meanings. Uh, they talk about remediation as the, um, the reflection of a media artifact or a media form in another media artifact or another media form. So they'll say, for example, that uh, uh, television uh, can be seen as a remediation of cinema, and lo and behold, now some cinema is remediating television. So it works both ways temporally, uh, but it's the idea that one form, uh, form forms and design and poetics in one medium are reflected in the form design and poetics of another medium, or the forms and poetics in one work are reflected in the forms... forms design and poetics of another work. So that's the first way they use it. The other way they use it is about this dialectic between, uh, it's really about user experience, and I've referred to it already. They talk about immediacy and hypermediation, and they say remediation is this ongoing dialect between, uh, uh, dialectic uh, between uh, immediacy, a state of uh, uh, transparent immersion, and hypermediation, being aware of the mediated experience. And so my readings of Run, Lola, Run rely on both concepts, uh, the idea of, uh, uh, reflections of medium in other forms and the idea of this uh, dialectic between immediacy and hypermediation. Um, I'm not going to show the clips. Sorry about that. I, I, I might show some slides. Uh, first interpretation, I won't say anything about it. It's kind of a surface one. Uh, I, you, you can read, you can interpret Run, Roll, Run as a remediated rock video. So I won't talk about it, but there's certainly parts of that film that borrow from uh, the form of music videos or rock videos. Uh, second reading is more interesting. This is Henry Jenkins' reading. Uh, Henry, Henry uh, uh, in a room very close to here, I heard Henry talking about Run, Lola, Run, could be interpreted, that the aesthetics and poetics of Run, Lola, Run can be interpreted as remediations of the uh, poetics and experience of a video game. And I won't talk about that. That's written up some uh, other places. It, it's, it's a good argument. It's quite solid. Um, I have a different one. My, remedi- my, my remediation, the third I'm going to come to, is that Run, Lola, Run is a... Re- so I, I agree that you can see it as a remediated music video. I agree that you can see it as a remediated uh, video game. But my claim is it's a remediated database. Now, what's the argument for that? How can I make it a, a, an outrageous statement that this work of art, this beautiful work of art, is in fact a remediated database? What's the argument there, do you think? Well, I'll give you some hints. Okay. And I want to start with the definition of a database. So according to Lev Manovich and according to computer scientists I've talked to, a database is a structured set of data. That that's, that's make, makes uh, uh, data in a database different from data in, say, a heap, uh, which is another collection of data. But a database is not a heap. It's not an unordered uh, A bunch of data. It's a structured set of data, and my claim is that Run Lola Run is a highly structured set of narrative events. Uh, The essence of the film, for those that haven't seen it, is let's say it's 90 minutes long. That's about right. Uh, The first 30 minutes, uh, Lola has a problem to solve. Uh, She runs through the city of Berlin to try to solve that problem, and she gets to the end. And uh, the problem is to save her boyfriend. Uh, who's going to get killed by his boss because he's lost some money. So she's got to get across Berlin in, in, in 20 minutes with the money. Uh, and at the end, uh, how do I think about it? he dies. He gets killed. Sad story. Then the film kind of resets. And there's a second. So the second uh, 30 minutes, uh, she runs through the city of Berlin. And by gosh, she, she repeats. Uh, there's like 17 different scenes that she goes through in the first run. She repeats. She goes through each of those scenes in the second run through. Slightly differently, uh, because she does something slightly differently at the beginning. And in the end, she dies. Another sad ending. So I'm, I'm an hour into the movie, there's been two almost identical passes through almost identical plots with slightly different beginnings and, and radically different endings. Well, The third one through, uh, she acts a little bit differently at the beginning, and she's more successful on the run through. Still goes through these uh, 17 different uh, 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 scenes with different uh, endings each time, and finally the end of it, uh, she lives, her boyfriend lives, and they walk away with a bunch of money, and everybody's happy. So um, that's, that's the film. And so here's my evidence. Here's my data. So I, I did the film. These are the uh, uh, the scenes on the run-through, and uh, they're repeated in the same order. Run-through number one. Um, oh, and then she dies. Sorry. She dies in the first one. Uh, her boyfriend dies at the end of the second one, and at the end of the third one, uh, everybody's happy. They get the money, and then they walk away happily ever after. So there's uh, 17 different scenes uh, in this. So you can think of these as uh, uh, fields in a database. Uh, there's three different runs through You can think of those as records. Uh, and so each record has uh, 17 different fields. And the correspondence, there's a few of the fields are empty. A few of the boxes are empty and a couple of them, the ones that are in italics, there's slight differences. So of the 51 possible narrative events parsed across these three plots, um, about 90% of the time, a version of the event happens here, a version of the event happens here, and an aversion of the event happens there. So there's a 90% correlation in the parallel nature of the the plot events. And I think that's not a bad database right there. So that's my argument for it. Oh, here's the beginning. I forgot. I got this. Yeah, what happens in the beginning is uh, she gets scared by a dog in the first run through, and, and she dies. The boy, and, the boy trips her. Uh, the, 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 boy, the, the, the dog's boy trips her, uh, and her boyfriend dies. And at the end, she stands up for herself. And by gosh, she lives. Uh, she gets the money that her boyfriend needs, uh, and they both live happily ever after. She also goes through these, there's these people that she kind of passes, like she's in this woman's life for, um, I call her the buggy lady. It's one of the events. Uh, she's in the buggy lady's life for, for two seconds. Uh, and then we see, in the first run, we see a bunch of Polaroid stills of the, uh, of the buggy lady. And it turns out her buggy is empty. Uh, she wants a baby. She steals a baby. And she ends up in jail uh, after this two-second encounter with, uh, with Lola running by. Uh, the second run through, she has the same encounter with Lola running by. And she wins the lottery, uh, and she ends up on the cover of a, a, a magazine, a uh, German magazine. I can't remember which one it is. Der Spiegel, maybe? I don't know. Um, uh, it's quite famous and quite rich. Uh, on the third is it? Which, what, what, anybody got a... Which one? Build. build. Thank you. Is that a good magazine, Build? Yeah. Build. <laughs> it's a tabloid. Well, there you go. She's a lottery winner. You know, what do you expect? What do you want, the New York Times? Um, the... Um, and in the third one, she has a, another two-second encounter in the third run through with uh, um, with Lola, and uh, she gets religion by gosh, and, and she uh, she becomes a born-again Christian and, and and gives magazines away in the street. So this is a woman who has brief, fleeting contact uh, with Lola, and, and the filmmakers go to the tr- Tickver, The filmmaker goes to the trouble of telling us that there's different uh, results of her life. Um, some other things happen, and again. M- Mildly different uh, uh, things in timing, wildly different things at the end of the film. Uh, and at the very end, like I said, she dies. In the first run-through, she gets shot by mistake. He gets run over by an ambulance. In the second run-through, he dies. Uh, and in the third one, don't worry, everything's okay. Come on, and they walk off. And, and not only not only has her boyfriend given the money to the boss, but she's got some extra money, so they're quite happy. Well, uh, I did a version of this paper. Actually, I, I, I did... Ronald had just come out and I did a version of the paper with Henry. Um, And uh, I hadn't quite finished. It was kind of a partial version of the paper. I I think I had the database part down. I said, look, Henry, it's a database. And Henry looked at me and says, well, Jim, he says "Uh, your evidence is good. um, And your argument's persuasive, but you missed the significant test, the third significant test for a a scholarly reading. And I said, what's that, Henry? And he says, so what? (laughs) And so this one, uh, the initial version of this paper uh, flunked the so what test. So what I've told you is a mild intellectual curiosity that, lo and behold, the plot of this film can be argued to be like a database in the rigidly parallel nature uh, of the narrative cells uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the three parts of the plot. Well, so what? Okay, well, here's so what. Because uh, I, I had to answer Henry. And then I had to answer William. My God, times are tough. Um, so I said, um, well, here's a so what. Um, what does that parallel structure actually do? Well, this parallel structure, it forces the viewer to puzzle out the film. Uh, and I think it's L. Sasser talks about puzzle films in one of his recent papers. They're, they're films that, make, that kind, we kind of scratch our head, and they make us try to figure stuff out. Well, one of the things about a massively parallel narrative structure that also has different endings after three quite parallel sequence of events, you've got to wonder what's going on. And so it forces the viewer to traverse the plot events in her head. Uh, this is an active experience and it's engaged viewer experience. Uh, and it also supports, it almost compels repeated viewings. And I think it takes the heart of the narrative process. You know, we're thinking about, um, this is, these are Bordwell's definitions, but they're similar to the, uh, some of the ones, if you take a Nick's class, they're, they're parallel to some of the definitions in Nick's class, I think. that sound nice about right? You know, he says plot instead of discourse, but kind of the story is presented as the plot. Um, The narrative is presented as the plot. What it forces us to think about the difference between, so narrative according to Bordwell, is a sequence of events in time and space joined by a cause and effect relationship, so there's got to be a logic to it. And it's trying to puzzle out the logic of these three plots that makes us want to think about what's going on. And so we look at this plot, the sequence of events that's presented, and we try to figure out Uh, What's in back of this? How do we make sense of it? What's what's the story that that, that underlies that? And you can come up with different conclusions. For me, the conclusion of the film is that um, what I get when I look at the film in in terms of uh, the theme of the film, it's about the play between choice and chance in all of our lives. Um, Lola's choices seem to determine her fate. When she's weak at the beginning, she dies. When she's weak at the beginning, if she doesn't die, her boyfriend dies. When she's strong at the very beginning of the film, that carries through the third plot run-through. And she ends up, she's alive, her boyfriend's alive, and they've got the money. And it comes from the choices that Lola makes to be strong in her run-through, this gamut that is the city of Berlin, in order to save her boyfriend. Now, what's interesting about choice and chance is, sure, from Lola's point of view, it's choice. From the point of view of the other people, it's chance. It's chance for their significant relationships. So Manny doesn't choose for Lola to be strong. For Manny's Lola's strength, it's a chance event. He doesn't control it, but it affects Manny. Lola's choice is meaning that for Manny, his girlfriend might die, he might die, or him and his girlfriend could live together and be happy forever after, and rich, okay? It's not a choice that Manny made. It's a chance event in, in, in Manny's life. It's even more, it, I think it's even more poignant and, 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 and more pronounced if you think about the buggy lady. The buggy lady is not Manny. She's not an important... Manny's her boyfriend, by the way. Uh, the buggy lady is not Manny. It's not an important person uh, in her life. It's a, a, a coincidental person in her life. The brush between... L- Lola runs by this person. Uh, you know, it's maybe two seconds long. And this seems to have, according to Ticknor's plot, this seems to have unbelievable connections to what happens to the buggy lady's life. Uh, she can end up going to jail because she stole a baby. She can end up become, winning the lottery and becoming rich. Uh, or she can find Jesus and become born again. It's kind of a version of chaos theory that these minor chance events around the buggy lady's light—that's what Lola is. She's a minor chance event uh, has a, has an extreme effect on her uh, uh, her own life. So for me, it, it's about the, the the play between choice and chance. The driver for that is the parallel narrative structure, the database structure. And, of course, there's a tradition of films like that. Uh, Rashomon is the classic in this genre, but there's also time code. Memento, which I think of as a database film with a lousy interface. I think that's the point of Memento, is the interface is supposed to be bad. Uh, Norman Conquest, which is a, it's a, it's a great series of plays by Alan Aikburn. Uh Source Code's a, a, a more recent one, maybe Groundhog Day. You know, There's database films that come up. Uh, and uh, they're fascinating. And they all share this, 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 uh, this fact that it's the parallel structure of the narrative that forces us to think about the relationship between the different narrative threads. I think it's also true to the lesser extent in, in all kinds of hypermediated plot structures. I think it's, I think it's what drives cross-cutting. Uh, so if you look at uh, the cross-cutting at the end of Birth of the Nation, uh, granted it's a, it's a piece of filth, but as a film uh, you've got you've to take into account as a piece of cinema. Uh, and the, the cross-cutting at the end was a powerful device. Well, that cross-cutting kind of you to think about what's going on in the town, what's going on in the countryside, what's going on on the road. Uh, more contemporary example, probably The Godfather. You know, so The Godfather, cross-cutting at the end of The Godfather, uh, kills one of the heads of the five families, cuts to the church in the christening. Kills another head of the five families, cuts to the church in the christening. Kills, from the, and so this, this cross-cutting between uh, killing gangsters on the one hand and this uh, sacred uh, uh, ritual on the other hand, that kind of cross-cutting, it forces you to think about stuff uh, and probably forces you to think about the morality of uh, these thugs that the movie has actually been uh, glorifying uh, through most of the film. Altman's works, uh, I think, make you think about the relationship uh, between plot and story and what it means. Uh, Tarantino's film, absolutely. Pulp fiction. Half the fun of pulp fiction is trying to figure out, well, what order did this stuff really happen in because it's presented completely out of order. And I think even Citizen Kane. You know, it's a, I think Citizen Kane is uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting hypermediated plot design. We never see Kane. We only see him from other people's point of view. And the point of views uh, overlap a bit temporally, but they basically move the, the plot and have his life. Forward, and then the next point of view moves it forward, and the next point of view moves it forward. In the end, we see his whole life, but we never see his whole life from his point of view, and I think it forces us to think about that a bit. Um, and I think, you know, I should probably stop, unfortunately. I wanted to show you, maybe I'll show the clip. <laughs> I'm going to show the clip uh, if you want to see more on it later. But I, there's a, how many people have seen the Thomas Crown affair? Not the one with Pierce Brosnan and Rene Rousseau. Uh, handsome and beautiful, though they are. How many have seen the Thomas... You have, and who's in it? Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway, Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway probably at that time, arguably the, the... The City of Boston. The City of Boston, absolutely true, absolutely true. I, wish I, I, I won't show you Boston. Boston's in my slide somewhere. We just won't have time for it. Um, but I will show you one short clip. It's, it's about the... Uh, this film is... The, my reading of this film is about the, the poetics of split-screen. And it's, uh, if you like film, I could show it to you later. Um, but I just want to show you a bit of the movie. Go to the right. Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can do that. Now, which one do I want here? Uh, it's this one, I think. Like so. So, Norman Jewison. Maybe Paolo Ferro might have done this. It's never clear. a little break from split screen, a full screen match here,
2: there's Queen. He's thief. He's rich,
1: and there's Faye Dunway, she's an insurance cop and she's hunting him, but she doesn't she's a not she's Very classy. Steve McClain, look at that down there. Ahead, Okay, that's it. So that's... Uh, when, it, when, it, when I analyze the, 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 the paper that I wrote on this one was an analysis of the poetics of the design of split screen. And the short version is, I, my claim is that I can analyze the design of split screens uh, in this film... Uh, and in other films, uh, using three different analytical lenses. One is uh, the narrative structure. So how does, how does the split screen r- relate to story? Uh, second one is what I call structural questions or the structural level. And the structural level is how is film time and how is film space treated across the split screens? And then the third one is just graphics. You can look at it from the point of view of size, shape, motion, vector, color. Uh, that you, that's, that's, it, it's, a, it's a good three-part framework Uh, the narrative level, the structural level, and the graphic level that enable you to do a a good understanding of the design decisions that went into a split screen. So that's my last truncated reading. And uh, I think we'll stop and have questions. And while I'm doing that, because I can, I'm going to run in the background. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Jim. I yeah, really enjoyed I, your talk. Yeah,
4: thanks, Sonny. Um, so I work a lot in and games. And Sonny, you know, you know what
1: poetics were.
4: I know all about poetics. You I, use <laughs> poetics, man.
5: I heard it the first day.
4: And I, I love the fact that you think that it's a useful uh, sort of scheme to study games with, because yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, what I'm wondering is, are there certain kinds of games that sort of resist that close-reading method? Um yeah, A recent example that comes to mind is this really excellent PlayStation 3 downloadable game called Dyad, yeah. uh, which moves very fast. And its creators have actually talked about the fact that some of the even game mechanical implementations are meant to be sort of only experienced on the... Subliminal level. Yes. Um, even some of the levels have sort of they 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 include the word subliminal, and they'll, yeah. it's a subliminal callback to what happened in the last level. Yeah. Is there a way to to read those things, uh, to read that that the, their sort of ineffable nature as uh, a, a, a certain poetic choice in, in and of themselves? And another yeah. example I have, or another area of challenge, would be sort of multi-user multiplayer systems, uh, where it seems like. The, the only way to really do a close reading would be to engage with things on the structural level so rather than seeing individual actions or interactions between players to say you know here's the structures that support those sorts of interactions but is there a way to do a close reading that doesn't go down the sort of the dreaded uh, affordances model um, is there a way to sidestep that and sort of do a a justifiable close reading of individual actor interactions
1: that happen between players in a system like that. That's what I'm wondering. Those are great questions, both of them. I'm not sure I can answer them, but I'll answer around them anyways, and you can tell me how far off I am. Um, First of all, I I have to give a disclaimer. uh, I write about uh, games, in particular I write about games narrative, but I I don't do it on my own anymore. Uh, That's the last game that I I wrote about on my very own. I I write about it now with my graduate students. Uh, My love is really cinema and my graduate students uh, live and breathe uh, the world of games in a way that I live and breathe the world of cinema. So they're, they're like you guys, right? <laughs> and so I write, I write with my graduates on, on that stuff. So I may not be, uh, uh, I'm not sure I can answer as well as I'd like to in that. But I'll, I'll, I'll come up with a couple of things. First of all, anytime you do a close reading, um, you don't read for the whole thing. I don't think, I don't, you could, but it'd just be, it'd be too big. You know, maybe, maybe maybe, a PhD dissertation, you might, I don't know, you might read it across several things. But I always pick a relatively narrow focus. And so the first example was the ineffable nature of gameplay that couldn't be recorded and was subliminal. Uh, boy, that's a special problem. I don't know the answer to that. If, if, I, if I had that problem, what I would do is I'd try to make a video record of the gameplay and then look at the video record in slow motion. Does that, does that get at it? Is it about speed of the uh, event?
4: I think that's what, that's what they're getting at when they yeah. say certain mechanics are subliminal. It's just yeah. they're, they're too fast to be read consciously and interpreted in the moment.
1: Yeah, so I'd make a video. I'd play that video in slow motion. But the other thing I'd do is I would try to, um, uh, even though I'm relying on this played back slow motion thing, I'd, I'd try to remember as best I can my feelings and my reactions as they were significant to the argument from my playing through in real time. Um, and so when the, the last uh, games paper I did was... Uh, I got a. I've got a brilliant uh, uh, grad student named Josh Tannenbaum. Josh and I did a reading of Mass Effect 2, and um, the uh, the other problems of reading games is three big problems of reading AAA titles, anyways. One is, um, and they're not the problems you you brought up. One is just size, and so you know it, it takes a long time. I can watch a movie in two hours. Mass Effect, uh, we crank through that puppy, and. Um, we had five different play sessions, you know, five to seven hours each to get through Mass Effect 2. Um, and we played a truncated version. We did suicide missions, didn't, you know, no side missions, just all the way through. Bang at the end, and we killed Shepard. <laughs> if you, I don't know if you played Mass Effect 2, but that was there was a rumor you could kill Shepard, uh, and so so we killed Shepard in the playthrough. Uh, but they're big, and so it's hard to read triple read A titles. The other problem with 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 uh, with, uh, with games, with any interactive uh, experience. Uh, Nick, sh- what was the one that Nick showed in class? That great hypertext story, oh, the, unknown. the unknown man, the unknown. What a great title, the unknown. You can't. It's, I, I defy you to read all of the unknown. I defy you to read uh, to play everything in a, in a great big triple A title. So you're doing readings on on part of a work, which is somewhat problematic. Um, and then the third problem with games, I think, is, and this may go to inevitability a bit, is there's different, there's different abilities of game players. And that can really affect the nature of the experience, and that really affect your reading. So there's the problem you talked about with this particular game, but there's also a bunch of problems with, uh, but people do it. You know, there's, uh, as you know, like there's, you know, uh, the reading of games has just exploded in the last five years, and I'm so happy to see it. Um, who is the guy from uh, Carnegie Mellon? Um, Drew Davidson's got this series called Well Played. And it's, just, you know, it's three books, and now it's a journal. It's just on close readings of games. That was a long answer. What was the se- second question? Was-
4: the second question was about uh, network systems, multiplayer systems. Can we do close readings of the uh, actual interactions, or do you have to only engage at the structural level and kind of look at them as affordances that enable certain types of interactions?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I mean, can you...
4: <laughs> it, it's a challenge. I would like to talk about what individual players do, but it seems that sometimes that, you know, academics especially are resistant to that as pro- being, a, at best, anecdotal evidence, um, when I think really going anywhere above the anecdotal just kind of um, discounts yeah. the, the, the sort of agency of the individual player, I think.
1: But it, surely you, a could do, you, could do, you could do an, an- Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. No, that, that's all I was saying. Was but surely you could do an anecdotal kind of ethnographic reading. It's, you know, I played the game. And this is what happened here, and I think this is significant, and here's why. And so you could base a good, close reading on uh, an idiosyncratic event as long as your evidence is clear and as long as your argument builds on that evidence and is plausible and substantive. So I think you could. I don't, how? I don't know. how. Sorry. <laughs> I have someone to back me up. Now. Okay, good. I mean, the main thing is you, you want to pick your focus. You know, I said, okay, you know, what phenomena am I interested in? And then, then you see the whole thing. Uh, again it's a hypermediation. You see the whole uh, artifact and the whole experience through the filter of that phenomena. Sorry, maybe, Sonny. Maybe just to butt yeah. in. So
0: so there's a yeah. guy named Auerbach who yeah. whose mimesis is actually interesting in terms of how do you deal with really big texts. You take a slice. Yeah. And he offers his his book offers a lot of different ways to slice oh, yeah. and, uh to work from a sectional analysis outwards. Yeah. Um, so that's and on the speed thing it just recalls yeah. to me I'm um, like of a generation where close reading was a big deal, yeah. but bound into the formalist project. Yeah. So at least in f- film school, it was always using these uh, frame-by-frame analysis. How do you deal with the ineffable in film? Yeah. Frame by frame, and the critique <laughs> yeah. was always like, "No one sees it that way. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make very elaborate arguments about the, the, f- the, the scratch in the upper left-hand corner of frame. Yep. You know, 1,372. Mm-hmm. Yeah but like, so what? Yeah. But that led to, a, actually it was kind of a segue from your close reading, your first two example yeah. to your second, yeah. where actually database patterns became far more interesting. Structural patterns became more interesting right. than the kind of interpretive, you know, uh, free fall of, of, of close reading. Yeah. Um, and some of the stuff that Hyperstudio does actually reminds me of...
1: So um, when you say formalists, is that that means like poetics, for example, design questions? Well, it was
0: kind of a segue in... Poetics from yes. one stance to another, from okay. an interest in poetics in terms of understanding meaning yes. to poetics as pattern recognition, but void of necessar- not necessarily <coughs> engaging meaning.
1: Got it, got it. And I, I mean, my, my instincts are usually, I, yeah. usually the latter. I'm, I'm interested in form. And, and so the, it's the structure of the film that interests me. Um. Yes.
6: So I guess a, a question about your thinking on close reading. Yeah. Um, without getting into the history of, of variations in close reading, which of course there there is. Yeah. Um, you know, another form of close reading is um, y- you had been talking about immediacy versus distance, mm-hmm. and um, I guess a lot of times I I think of or try to perform myself close readings that in order to achieve that distance, look for some point of reference outside of the text that's being read. Right. So that may be reference to some. Um, uh, professional standard that was happening uh, yeah. that was informing it or reference to could be the author or creator or whatever yes. kind of text you're talking about. And that becomes a, a sort of springboard for then understanding something deeper in the text.
7: That's right. What struck
6: yeah. me is that what you seem to be doing with these three readings of, of very different things is finding a structure, a database, or a game to be able to move more into the text and and look for, there's less of a point of reference outside, and and your point of reference becomes something that you're able to build yourself inside the text. So are you making a case for an even closer kind of close reading, or um, uh, how deliberate is that move even more inward?
1: Yeah, yeah. First of all, I, I don't—I understand what you're saying, and it is inward, I guess. But I don't see it as inward. Uh, to me, what, what I'm looking at is not inward into me. I'm looking inward into the the media form, and the background of that is, is about me. I'm a, I'm a teacher, I've been a classroom teacher for 40 years. I've taught video production. I actually taught game production, believe it or not. Um, and so, if you're—you know—my feeling with my film students was um, I wasn't sure if I could teach them to be brilliant or teach them to be geniuses. That was above my pay grade. But I could darn sure teach them to be competent. And so teaching someone to be competent in the making of of an artifact uh, is really about finding design parameters and design decisions and design patterns that they can structure and they can use as they're learning the medium and finding the way to their own voice. Uh, And so for me, going inside to a media artifact and understanding what were the creative decisions that were made from the point of view of that work? And could I generalize those individual creative decisions to the medium itself? Because I was teaching people how to work in film. That's kind of what drove me. And uh, my close readings, you know, either I became a teacher because I like doing that uh, or because I've been a teacher for 40 years. That's kind of pointed me that way. But I'm always interested in the design of the form. I don't read stuff outside of the work. I, I'm, in that sense, you're right but I see it as not being buried into me, but being buried into the Maybe that's what you meant. Because I go into the work? Okay, yes, I do, absolutely. But I try to go beyond the work to the medium, but not necessarily to other questions. So I don't, I don't. You know, clo- you know, people do very good close readings for a whole range of outcomes. My outcomes are always design, not so much cultural questions or social questions, which I think are very important, uh, and I'm glad good, smart people are doing them, but it's just not what I do well. So I guess the answer is yes.
3: <laughs> That's a good question. I think you probably just answered the question okay. I was going to ask. Uh you use this word, uh this phrase of um, you know, um close reading as uh in in some ways uh a analogous to reverse engineering. So yes. you're sort of talking about that. And yep. I was kind of curious about yeah. how you were using that and you yeah. just sort of answered that. But yeah. then let me extend this a little bit. Uh so Films were made uh, in different ways in the 30s and 40s and 50s yes. than they are made now. Uh, you know, now films uh, come are sourced from multiple sor- uh, places. Yeah. Uh, they are sutured together in studios. Uh, and we get productions that uh, are quite different from anything that was produced uh, that Bordwell probably writes about. Um, yeah and I'm also thinking about game constructions. Uh, games are constructed by teams who work at different levels and so on and so forth. So uh, what happens to the reverse engineering theory as you move into these uh, much more complicated regimes
1: of production? Yeah, it's a really good question. The, uh, and um, I basically ignore it. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like one of the things I've never done, and I could have, uh, is I've never checked with the author. Like, I'm, I'm friends with Alex Mayhew, who was the creative designer for Man of Innocence. And when I was writing the thesis and when I was writing the papers, I never asked Alex, am I on the right track? Because part of... I don't know why, Jim, I don't have a good answer, but when I do a close reading, I, I want to rely on the work. And for me, the work speaks for itself. And intentionality of authors, you know, for some people it's really important, I just ignore it completely. And so the work is there. And so if I'm reverse engineering the work of one person or 20 people or 100 people, I don't care. I just look at the work. So it's a great question, but my, my focus is it's, it's pretty tight, which goes back to your point. I've got, a, I've got kind of a little closed system that I'm working here. <laughs> By the way, I did ask Alex Mayhew years later, and Alex said, yes, Jim, we were thinking of character and narrative when we designed the cursors.
5: <laughs> so. So actually, I'll I'll just follow up on that a little bit, because um, you seem to kind of want to um, hold the object uh, uh, at kind of the fore, suggesting as though uh, the meaning is all kind of uh, bubbling out from the object based on your kind of close reading of it, right, that you can...
2: No
1: what, what did I talk about me, oh, okay, okay okay i'll, I'll accept
5: well, it youre're you are you are decoupling it from the context of reading, i guess is my question and and so part yeah. of what i'm what i'm wondering is you're is yeah. you're saying you're focusing on the object, um but different objects can be read at different periods by different people depending upon their- spe- spe- their specific yeah. perspectives yeah and so i'm I guess I'm wondering is this um you know an answer to the question that was before that you're yeah. focusing on the object and not yourself, and yet you're the one engaging in the activity of of the reading right so yeah. um so is
1: uh, <laughs> Keep going. Uh, that's a good question, by the way. I'm not trying to be Yeah, skeptical.
5: I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to suggest that it is as much about you as it is about the object because of the activity of reading being done by yourself um, in a sort of decontextualized kind of way.
1: Well, I, th- I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it is my brain. It's my eyes. It's my notes. Um, but what my methodology, what I tried with the methodology is, because um, what you're talking about is inevitable, you know, of course it's my perspective. Uh, What I try to do with a methodology is I try to, as much as I can as a fallible human being, to kind of minimize uh, what I'm seeing that's a function of myself and maximize what I'm seeing that's as a function of the artifact. And that's the point of the notes. Now, the notes could also be flawed. I understand that. But, you know, by and large, I mean, the stuff that I describe I saw it. I didn't make anything up. And so for me, that gives me the confidence to say, when I'm making an argument about the design of this piece, I'm building the argument on stuff that happened. It's stuff I chose to look at, it's stuff that I noted in a certain way, but by and large, you know, it's stuff that happened, I didn't make it up. And so I try to minimize the effect that you're talking about. So philosophically and psychologically, I agree completely. But in terms of the outcomes, I don't think so. I think the stuff, you know, I think when I, when I recognized um, different classes of creative decision-making inside the split screens of Thomas Crown Affair, I stand by that. I think one can see the design of narrative inside the split screens, and one can deconstruct that. And one can see questions of time and space inside the design of the split screens, and one can deconstruct that. And I think one can see graphic decisions, specific graphic decisions, inside the split screens, and you can deconstruct that. And further, I believe that you can take those things and you can apply them to other works. So at the end of the day, you know, you're right, but I still stand by my conclusions. And what gives me the, the, the confidence to do it is, is the nature of the evidence, that I'm, I'm meticulous about evidence. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's a good question. I'm also, I'm not that smart, you know. <laughs> I just, see what I, I just a, see what I see, and I write about what I write about, you know.
0: There's a domain where this place is really playing out right now, which yeah. is in archives, yeah. where they're trying to generate the truth. Archives are trying to monetize their holdings. Yeah. And especially in time based archives, you're like what's on a film? And you yeah. basically have some metadata that someone left behind, and you can only sell it if the metadata aligns with someone's needs. So Did they're you? trying to build, they're trying to use computers now to sort of generate endless metadata about what exactly is in this clip. Mm-hmm. It's a Pruder film, for example. What is this? Yep. Probably on the label it says Kennedy assassination. Yeah. But if you're interested in a 1963 Lincoln, yeah, It doesn't say that on the metadata. Uh-huh. So they're trying to get these, the computers to kind of read infinite meaning, yeah. like pink, because Jackie was wearing pink. Yeah, 63 Lincoln. Um, the, to how many trees are in the image? But it, it's turning out to be a real problem, because there's so much there to be seen, yeah. and so much of it is culturally, I think Abe's question, so much of that is kind of culturally positioned. Yeah. You'll see a very particular kind of event because of your historical position. Yeah. But the computer sees a lot more than
2: yeah.
0: like we we have a lot of constraints on our vision. Yeah. Because of prior knowledge. Anyway, yeah. all to say it's a very current problem and the debate yeah. is whether to use humans to do this or yeah. machines. Yeah. There's a lot of money in the answer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I just sort of wanted to clarify, were you asking the reading Hamlet in the Bush question? Okay, so so the idea, right, is that uh, you know s- this uh, woman, an anthropologist, decided that she was going to prove that Hamlet was deathless literature, and that everybody in the world could appreciate Hamlet, and everyone that she knew. Hamlet was a wor- witch. Sorry, was uh, deathless literature. Right. And uh, everyone she knew it had been translated in many languages. Everybody thought it was great, so she was going to take it to her. Uh, you know, she can or she. Someone convinced her to take it along to you know this very remote place um, in either Africa or Australia. Yeah. I don't remember. I mean, it's an anecdote much more than... It is a real study. Anyway, she took it to this uh, to this group of people, and uh, they thought it was the most hilarious comedy ever because everybody knows what you do with a ghost, and Hamlet was not doing what you're supposed to do with a ghost, and this is ridiculous, mm. right? So, I mean, in, in that sense, I guess... Uh, And similarly, you can see sort of like smaller shifts like with My Little Pony and Bronies, right? Mm -hmm. Like My Little Pony, if you were doing this formless, you know, reading of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, you would get something very different Mm -hmm. than what the actual cultural interpretation among some young 20-something men of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic Mm -hmm. is. So isn't it just down to like we are doing an analysis which is relevant to a current cultural location that we assume that the audience is also part of, and that's okay?
1: Well, I think it's okay. Um, But I I, got to confess, you know, I don't see this kind of like a Heisenberg's uncertainty principle about observational data. Um, On the one hand, I understand and respect what you're all saying. On the other hand, um, you know, there were 60 puzzles, and (laughs) son of a gun, 18 of the puzzles, the arrow became an object. And son of a gun, all those 18 puzzles, 10 of the ones with Griffin, the functionality was messed up. And Sabine, none of them. So, you know, I, I understand that there's a possibility of slippage. In practice, I just don't. I, you know, I, I think my I think my conclusions are pretty valid. Um, you know the, and again, here, here's this is this is Boardwell's point. Boardwell's point is, this is an empirical exercise. It's based on evidence. So you can look at my evidence, look at my claim, look at my argument to support the claim given that evidence, and you can decide for yourself how much slippage there was and whether it's acceptable or not. But we can do that because it's based on evidence. And I think at the end of the day, uh, arguments about slippage between positional point of views because of generations or cultural. I just don't think they're significant in the kind of work that I do. Don't forget, I'm not looking at culture. I'm not looking at uh, sociology. Uh, I'm not looking at ethnographic questions. I'm looking at the design of media forms. And I think there's intrinsically less slippage there in terms of description of evidence than there is slippage in more culturally biased and important observational points of view, I think. That's my position. Split screens, you know. <laughs> yeah. Look at a split screen. How many are there? There's five. Well, okay, there's five. You know, Is the stuff moving in the same direction? Yeah, it is. So you make an argument based on that. So there's, there's not a lot of slippage in the kind of stuff that I do. Um, and that's, it goes back to your point. That's what I'm comfortable with. You know, and I'm interested. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you do stuff that you're intellectually interested in. I'm, I'm deeply intellectually interested in the evolving nature of mediated design. Just, you know, I'm, I'm driven by that. Other important questions are important, but they're not mine.
8: Hey, Jim. Uh- yeah, hiya thanks so much for the talk. Thank um, you. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the sort of questions and distinctions you made between database and narrative and it 's something that we're really working with and struggling with in the open doc lab in particular. Yeah, yeah. but um, you know I was really interested when you were talking about database films too and yeah. Also wondering, isn't it, aren't those, especially in the, the more Hollywood examples, um, films that the audience sort of reads as a whole? And unlike a computational database, you couldn't necessarily take the parts of Run, Lola, Run, or, or Memento, for instance, and reorder it and have it sort of retain the meaning. that these, these films are sort of building towards whether it's the protagonist learning something or not learning something or making a certain point. So could you really call them databases, or are they just making sort of the bones of the story more explicit? than a lot of Hollywood films, but kind of building in the same way that a lot of films do. Who you know, like said a
1: database has to be computational? So there was a database, medical records, huge databases, right? Right. Piles of paper, not computational. And so a database does not equal computational. The, the essence of a database is it's the ordering of, of, of the set of data into a structure. That's what a database is.
8: But I, I guess I'm questioning, is the data discrete? You know, is it its own separate thing? Like, or is it a... Uh, you know, do you know... Do you, do you understand what I'm saying, I guess? Is, is it... Could you take each piece of data and, and look at it? it
1: it's it's tougher... Is it,
8: nar- is it a narrative, I guess? I don't want to yeah. say is it a narrative yeah, or yeah. is it a database? But, like, yeah, yeah. um... Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: Manovich writes about this, right? Right. And, and you know, Magiv's position is that... Uh, Data, <coughs> database and narrative are natural enemies. Then <coughs> he goes on to write about database narratives, so go figure, right? <laughs> and his position is that the, uh, the database, because it's an ordered set of, uh, of, 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 of data, of data points, uh, is antithetical to the narrative because the narrative is a particular path through a set of events and a unitary path uh, through a set of events. And so he sees database narratives as computational database narratives as one where... Uh, you know this stuff, that you, 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 you design your way through, you, you work your way through uh, a complex matrix of data points, but your path through it is, in fact, the narrative, and that's how he reconciles them. But I haven't answered your question yet. Try, try again. Well, I'm not good at this.
8: <laughs> no, I mean, I guess I'm not good at it either, and I guess that just sort of gets to the complexity of the question, or the complexity of the issue between... Yeah. Okay, well, let me come at
1: it another way, okay? A way that... Uh, and I'm not sure what you're asking, but let me let go me another way. The... Um, I think there is a contradiction between cinematic database narratives and the core concept of narrative. Right. And the reason is uh, the pleasure of narrative for a lot of us, for, for a lot of our experience, is the suspension of disbelief and, 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 and immersion of the story, which is not passive. It's an active experience, but still there's a kind of an acceptance of the storytelling function and maybe an active surrender. What did, what did Coleridge say? The willing suspension of disbelief, right? So we choose to have this contract with the work, whereby we trust the work to take us through a story. Um, the database films, so I'll be specific, Rashomon, Run Will Run, I think are the two most rigorous examples, the mm-hmm. most highly parallel database right. films. Um, complete and parallel database films. Work as works of art, precisely because they force us to hypermediate and think about what we're seeing. And so in Rashomon, it forces us to think about what is the nature of what you were talking about, of of human perception? And what is the individuality and the slippage from one person to another? Um, We think about that. So when we think about that, it's not really, you know, it's not, uh, I'm not sure that, you know, that's not the classic narrative paradigm. It's a narrative paradigm of hypermediation and thinking about stuff, as opposed to suspension of disbelief. I think, maybe it's a compromise. Because when I think about Rashomon, I am thinking about the individual characters. I'm trying to reconcile that. And I've chosen to believe in those characters as constructs and chosen to see their retelling of events as um, um, legitimate and indeed narrative. So I sort of answered the question, you know. Well, let's talk about <laughs> Okay. I am I sorry. I, mean, I would oh, just... Yeah. The question like, all narratives sort of challenge? I don't know. Yeah. All narratives make you think? Good for you. I like that.
9: <laughs> I was, uh, I really enjoyed the talk. But I think
1: database narratives make you think more, and they make you think in a certain way. The act of thinking across the work is built in to the dynamics of the experience of a database narrative. And I think it's, well, I, that's, you know, i talked about that a lot, right? Yeah.
9: Hey, Jim. I, I really enjoyed the talk. And I was actually just going to kind of enter this yeah. phrase because I had a similar question. And uh, you said Lev Manovich, who cites, or talks a lot about Ziga Vertov. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I yeah, wonder where, where this this database is kind of an organizing principle for yes. narrative. If it's more on the side of the makers, and a lot of what he talks about with Ziga uh, was kind of yeah. how he used the database pr- database principle in uh editing process. Yeah. But ultimately, the resulting you know film is is viewed linear, linearly. That's right. Um, so what? But then when you talk about something like Run Lola Run, it's yeah. kind of alluding back to that kind of many paths through the same data. Um, Yes. Idea. So, where do you see that kind of distinction between uh, a database film on on the maker side and more than on the viewer side, who kind of might perceive it as a database, but it it wasn't actually constructed in that.
1: Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. But I come from the view of design, and so um, I think the making of stuff is really important. And it's but when I think about design, it's the flip side of experience. So I'm not so much interested in. Uh, the physical process and the actual operations of putting something together, right. like taking a bunch of you know, potential pieces of film and taking them out of the bin, you know, making a narrative out of this bin that's a database of potential moments of space and time. I don't think about that so much. I think about um, why this film? You know, what's the effect of, of having shot A and then shot B? I think more about this. When I think about design decisions, uh, I think more about the stuff that is directly connected to user experience. Because the user doesn't care that the filmmaker had a database of shots. That's nothing to the, right. nothing to the user. So when I, the design that I think about is the design that's directly connected to experience. Of course. And Although then, I don't do user studies, so go figure. Right.
9: right. <laughs> and then when you throw video games into the fray, it creates a much more interesting space. Because yeah. when you, have, you do have some things that maybe, you know, they pull narrative from the database, but also things that are set as a narrative in the database. So, how does that complicate? <laughs> that well, it's
1: interesting. The um, things like cutscenes, for example, or progression through the levels. Prog- the, exactly. There's, yes. there's certain part of the narrative, and that's what's interesting about games, right? Sure. Is that certain parts of the, the narrative are locked in, either as cutscenes or what was the ones that Sunny, what was, the ones you're talking about was the the set pieces, which are almost cutscenes but not quite. So, presumably, there's more constriction. Let's use constriction. Okay. There's more constriction in a cutscene. Uh, than there is in, in free play, uh, but there's moments of constriction and transition through levels and getting powers and deciding which missions, you, or what, you know, making a decision for mission where that takes you, so those are things that are determined, and there's a bunch of stuff that's not determined, and I don't have a, you know, I'm not a good enough game scholar to be able to speak intelligently about, if you look at, uh, you know, the, the, the broad reach of video games, how is that parsed out, that constriction of narrative as opposed to free development narrative. I'm just not a strong enough game scholar to answer that well. Let me think about Mass Effect 2. Well, it's interesting. We had a fair bit of freedom in Mass Effect 2, actually. And that's described as a railed game. But the fact is, we went through Mass Effect 2, we didn't play any of the side missions. And so all of our crew died. In the end, Shepard died, right? And so... Mass Effect 2 is described as a highly railed game, but we had a, you know, a fairly unique outcome. You don't read a lot of people that Shepard dies. We heard a rumor that, you know, we killed him. <laughs> we killed us, right? So. Yeah. So just to
7: continue the, yeah. the conversation, the last thing I want to do is, is be a quibbler because I think what you're calling database games are interesting things. Um, database database, database movies, rather. Yeah. Are interesting things which bear more consideration, but just to open it up a little bit, Yeah. part of the power of a database is is... The degree to which you can walk in more than one dimension, and it, it run Lola run. I mean, there's a nice parallel structure, but you're only walking in one dimension. You walk through the narrative, and there's interesting things that you can see when you. Look, but you can't really walk across them. True. Sure and so.
1: You, can so make you finish, then yeah. i push back. I mean you, Sorry, can, Scott. you
7: can, in ref- on reflection, think about the buggy lady a little bit. But there's not the sense of, some, is there an interchangeability between her different stories? In, could I flip the, r- the narratives in the, d- in the different versions? I think, all I'm saying, I'm, not yes. really, I'm really not trying to undermine your metaphor so much as say that there's something yeah. else out there that's possible that's worth considering, which is a narrative in which you really could walk in multiple dimensions through the different components. And I think games may get closer to it, but it's... Um, I think we, we haven't begun. I guess we haven't fully unfolded what uh, what a database narrative might be. That's all I'm really saying. Well, I agree with
1: that. Yeah. Now you're 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 perishing close to saying that games are more interesting than films. I hope you're not saying that
7: because that would break my heart. No, I'm I'm saying that there's that there's that databases suggest interesting things about the ways in which we can look across yeah. in multi dimensions at sets of data. Yes, and that the films that you've mentioned yeah. only sort of do it, and games do it in other ways, and that we need to, it'll, it will be interesting in the future to keep exploring that idea of walking. Uh, gotcha. Okay.
1: Gotcha. Well, I agree with you on that. I think there's, there's stuff to be developed, and certainly there's computation to be harnessed in a deep exploration of what does database narrative mean. But just to be clear, just to push back in your quibbles, number one, Run, Lola, Run is a database. That is, it's a highly structured set of narrative events. And number two, the whole point of what I was saying was that you traverse this database not only vertically, but you traverse it, you, you traverse it horizontally. And then you think about that horizontal traverse. Now, granted, you couldn't, as you could, plug items back and forth across those three things, but I don't think you could do that. You know, you couldn't do that with a database of medical records. No. If, I took, if I took my heart reading... And plugged it into somebody else's record—that th- wouldn't happen.
7: Look at interesting the interesting relationship things that come by by looking at comparisons across that I just think are not um, the different what? correlations and yeah it's a, there's more depth to a database than what you've dis- you've described a very flat database in run all the run and and uh, th- there's more depth I think in what databases are and therefore like I said it bears further examination. <laughs>
1: It is indeed a flat database, Scott. We agree on that 100. percent It's not a relational database. So we agree on the that. The
0: trick now is that there are database films where you, the user, have to pick one from column A, one from column B, yeah. one from column C, yeah. and you can pick any of them. Yeah. Where run of run is still a linear ordering yeah. of. You could maybe re, again reverse engineer it and say it comes from a database, but yeah. it's reads through it. It's Manovich's notion of yeah. these are the these are the through lines. Yeah. Um, you can't really. Do much except in the analysis.
1: You know, why do we keep saying you can't do it? I mean, what I like about Run Lola Run, let me be clear, is it's a good movie, and and so I, I don't, you know, I I kind of resist denigrating it as, geez, it's not computational. And well, yeah, it's not computational. It's it's a movie. The database is partly a metaphor and partly an argument, right? But I wouldn't I wouldn't detract from the film because of that. No,
0: no, no. I'm just saying there are, there are database, because there are these films that are now because there are yeah. these experiences that are now database true databases where you can path your own way yes. through, yeah. it, it does sort of make the reading of Run, R- Lola Run more kind of metaphoric or retrospective or kind of an analogy that we want to invoke. But in truth, someone has pre-picked a set of paths and we just follow. And yeah. not, not to say anything critical about the film. It's just yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of only in our reconstruction of it yes. mentally maybe from a database, yeah. but what we experience is just a linear
1: yeah. path. Yeah, absolutely true on that. The, um, and I mean, that's, that's where Scott's absolutely right, and that's where you're absolutely right. There is a whole, there's an aesthetic and a poetic yet to be discovered with, with true database narratives to make use of that full functionality. My question is, so what, what, are, the, what are the great works in that area? Have you seen, seen one that you really love?
0: Well, I think it throws the onus on the user, right, that, yeah. that um, my experience becomes far more important and it, it's not intersubjective because yeah. your experience will never be my experience because yeah. we're going to path differently. Yeah. So um, have I had a good experience? Yeah, I've had some good ones.
1: Yeah, so what's, what's a great database, uh, oh, computational database narrative?
0: I, I can only tell you about Elastic Charles.
1: Oh, the walk through the, the, the 20, 21st century? That, yeah, got it. Good. I'm glad there's examples. And there's more, I bet, right? Nick would know. But
0: if you choose poorly, it's a bad experience, right? Yeah. I, I, hey, Same pick with a, films. Pick, pick a bad one in column C, and you're yeah. in trouble.
1: Yeah. Same with films. Oh, if I see what you mean. You, I, I was saying if you pick the wrong work. You're saying if you make the wrong choice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. makes the work as a whole harder yeah. to harder yeah. to. Uh, well, I think it's about time we need to wind down. But I hey. think we have a reception, right? We do. So we have a reception. Let's continue this over over food. Jim, thanks very much Thank you very much. <laughs> And come on down to the third floor of the old media lab, if that's indeed where it still is. Yes. Okay.